You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Jared Hindmarsh. There have been a lot of commemorations of battles in World War One, being 100 years on, primarily because we do like round numbers, but they are worth remembering. We don't learn from history as the saying goes, and just the stories from it are some of the most appalling, I think, in human history when it comes to conflict. And in October 1917, uh, the First World War becomes very much entrenched and many people were aware of the horrors. It didn't stop it happening. We're looking today at the Battle of Passchendaele, New Zealand involvement, especially in one particular very, very bloody and heartbreaking conflict, Bellevue Spur in Belgium. Jared, a little background on Passchendaele, what set up this New Zealand action? Yeah, and I thought we couldn't go past the 100th anniversary of the uh, Passchendaele campaign without something on the show about it. It really was our most total disaster, really, in a war. It was for New Zealand. Ever since 1917, Passchendaele has been a byword for the horror of the Great War. In terms of lives lost in a single day, the failed attack on Bellevue Spur, and that's what I intend to talk about today, day that started on the 12th of October 1917 was probably the greatest disaster in our national history. Bellevue Spur was only a silly little hill too, a sort of V-shaped hill, maybe 200 feet high, and it had no strategic advantage. The British military authorities pitted our divisions into the enemy in the most shocking conditions. And, you know, Graham, I've just come back from Wellington. I visited a in the Anzac exhibition called The Scale of Our War. And man, these battles make me sick that we were sacrificed like that. What a, a terrible thing that was. The cost in lives for two and a half years on the Western Front in Belgium and France, they were just appalling. Yeah, it is freakish to try and conceive of the nature of the conflict and the loss of life. And you well know, Jared, uh, but it's worth saying, it's not just the loss of life, it's the loss of limbs, the loss of sanity. There, there are psychological brutalities that happen as well. And, you know, altogether, some 13,250 New Zealanders died of wounds or sickness as a direct result of the Passchendaele campaign. Now, there were 50 were prisoners of war and more than 700 died at home. And there were 35,000 wounded and 414 prisoners of war, I think, were ultimately repatriated. But the total casualties were close to 50,000. 
thousand. Now this was well over half the number of those who served on the Western Front. Now remember that only one hundred and three thousand troops and nurses signed up to go to the war. Now this is from a population of one million. So that's fifty eight percent casualties in the total of the people that went to war. Absolutely terrible and you know they died wounded sick you know a lot of them died in training or died as a result of their injuries within five years of returning home so they're all included and to think that they had to endure this after Gallipoli because after the evacuation from Gallipoli in December 1915 the New Zealand forces returned to Egypt to recover and all the wounds attended to but in February 1916 it was decided that the Australian and New Zealand infantry divisions would be sent to the Western Front. And this was on March the 1st, the New Zealand division was formed. Yeah, you don't get that pass. Well, you've been through hell, go home. You're still in the army and they need you somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. I find it so hard to imagine. (laughs) Yeah. I will be doing a lot of hard to imaginings, I think. But having been through the Gallipoli conflict, imagine, okay, now you're off to, oh, Passchendaele. Yeah, and the New Zealand division, it was, it was commanded by Major General Andrew Hamilton Russell, and the division consisted of three brigades of four battalions each with supporting artillery and other units. So in April 1916, they crossed the Mediterranean to France and troop ships, and in mid-September, it joined the Battle of the Somme as part of the renewed offensive to break the German lines. In June 1917, the New Zealand helped capture Messines Ridge in Flanders and on each occasion the division achieved its objectives it always suffered heavy casualties so the British authorities thought the New Zealanders could be put in the forefront to forge the enemy out of their positions but in October the New Zealanders experienced their most devastating nemesis really at Passchendaele with this attack on Bellevue Spur. It cost the lives of more than 800 140 soldiers in just a mere couple of days. You know, you can imagine this scene because the British artillery had pounded the German positions with 4.2 million shells in the two weeks before. Every tree, house, church and street had just been blown to bits as far as these bombs could reach. So that the entire terrain had just been turned into a pitiless cratered landscape with craters that were about a man's height and filled with water and it was just basically mud. Yeah, Passchendaele is synonymous with that mud and just can't get anywhere. Those famous images, there's some moving as well, just as much as the Somme was famous for... Uh, men walking into German lead with their chests. You know, you couldn't have worse conditions. Men actually just disappeared in the mud, never to be seen again. And you might go unwounded, but the biggest risk was actually drowning in this mud. Man, and the rain never stopped, and the British uh, military authorities never let up their determination for the New Zealanders and Australians and the Canadians to keep pushing forward. What a tragedy it was. 
The New Zealand infantrymen, they had no illusions about the task ahead of them as they waited in the mist and rain for the dawn to break on the 12th of October. They were told that they had to be on the attack from 5.30 in the morning when the attack would get underway. And the one thing they must have hoped for more than anything else was that the supporting artillery barrage would be so overwhelming from the British artillery that it would cut a swathe through the wire entanglements and let them get to their objective, which was this German artillery and machine guns, all comfortably embedded, all nice and dry they were too, in these pillboxes on these elevated positions. And that would allow the advancing troops to cut their way through the wire with a minimum of enemy fire directed at them. Now, this is exactly the same strategy that was proposed and undertaken in the Battle of the Somme. And to everybody's surprise, except the Germans, it didn't work. No, and they underestimated the Germans terribly as well. The British High Command mistakenly concluded that the number of German casualties was declining, actually, at, at the start, meant that enemy resistance was faltering. So they resolved to make this big push immediately. Now, they miscalculated terribly because the Germans were coming in in force and because they were so protected, their casualties were falling and the British just presumed that was because there were less Germans there that were getting killed. It was a Stupid. I, you know, Graham, I sometimes think about these removed British military establishments. May we forever be divorced from them in battle? Mm, a major criticism, and probably a fair one, that they simply didn't understand the conditions and they would order people to move from A to B, and you can't do it in that mud just not understanding the nature of the terrain at the time. Yeah, and Bellevue Spur, it was absolutely bristling with machine guns. It had nearly a 1,000 Germans all armed with machine guns. That was the main obstacle ahead, and the New Zealanders were expected to knock their way through to Passchendaele and beyond. And no man's land was this, as I said, this expanse of mud and water-filled shell craters, and the Germans were strongly entrenched and they were ready for the attack. They knew it was coming. So throughout the night, they sent up flares and about five o'clock, the Germans opened up with this heavy bombardment of the New Zealand troops exactly where they were assembling and they inflicted quite a few casualties right before they'd even started. And these Germans had the higher ground as well. Yeah, and the New Zealanders had to go through this just total chaos to get there. They were set up for failure. Now, it was it was going to be a six-mile frontal advance and the New Zealand attack was to cover a front about a mile wide and to penetrate about a mile and a half to the far side of Passchendaele Ridge. That was the plan. Now, the assault was intended to strengthen the Allied grip on the main ridge through this capture of Passchendaele. They thought that the 3rd Australian Division 
on the New Zealanders' right would actually take the village, and also Goldberg Spur, that was a little to the north, which the New Zealanders would take. So the British certainly had their plan, and uh, these were the New Zealand orders. Now, the New Zealand division had taken part with quite a bit of success, actually, it's a, but at some considerable cost in the previous British advance. Now, this was on the 4th of October, and it had attacked along a front of about 2,000 yards, and it had captured Gravenstaffel village and a number of other objectives. The officers and men, they, they risk absolute certain death and wounds in storming these concrete machine gun positions and either killing or capturing their crews. And that's hand-to-hand combat in the end? Yeah, your bayonets are attached, and in the end, you're just stabbing the enemy. Man, imagine that, Graham. I can't, I can't imagine it myself anyway. Many fought until they were utterly exhausted, and they carried on even after being wounded, many of them. And one uh, man in this previous battle, uh, New Zealand, he'd be armed with a revolver. He'd rushed a machine gun position, and his bravery led another man to follow him. You know, often if one spurs forward, you'll get others following them. But both of these chaps were wounded, and the second man died, but their action enabled other members of the section to get up and the gun was captured and the crew was killed and a Wellington corporal, he was badly wounded, he lay upon the ground and he kept urging his men to attack till the post was captured and and the machine gun crew was killed. I suppose many of those attacks, they know the chances of survival are pretty small and to lay wounded, you wouldn't want that effort and your life that you've sacrificed to be wasted so I suppose urging on your men to take advantage of what you've sacrificed which may well and in all likelihood be your life. Yeah. Let's get this geographically because Passchendaele is just a name. We're in Belgium right? Flanders it is. It's a vast plain there. It's where all this western front played out basically. All right, we're looking at the Passchendaele battle. It started on the 12th of October 1917. Given the nature of these conflicts, that comes under the umbrella of the Third Battle of Ypres in the First World War. But a particular operation undertaken primarily by the New Zealanders on the front line in Passchendaele. Uh, We're talking about the Battle of Bellevue Spur. We'll be back very shortly with Gerard Heinmark. Tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. 1917, October. The Battle of Passchendaele on the Western Front was raging. Passchendaele famous, of course, for the mud and the rain, that famous footage of horses being stuck in muddy craters and and men drowning, not dying by being shot by enemy artillery or gunfire, uh, just simply getting stuck, just the most appalling conditions. And yet they had to do the most appalling tasks in those conditions. One of them was Bellevue Spur, undertaken by the New Zealanders. Yeah, and the um, 49th British Division, that actually unsuccessfully tried to capture Bellevue Spur a few days before, and now it was the New Zealanders' turn, and the New Zealand Division had never before failed to gain a major objective at this time, although, as we said, Graham, the cost was sometimes horrific. But the outgoing division, they couldn't get 
a very clear description of the enemy's defences or really account for why it had been repulsed. These are the people that had been in this attack and yeah. they came back with no, not much information about why. No, and the Otago Patrol under Richard Travis, he was sent out for more information and he returned with the scant intelligence that the no-man's land was just a mass of water-filled craters and wire entanglements and that there were at least six pillboxes protected by uncut wire and other deep wire defences on the second brigade front. So that was as close as he could get for the intelligence. Now this brigade, the second brigade front, that was the Otago and Canterbury battalions, they had the job of assaulting the actual spur itself and on its left was the New Zealand Rifle Brigade. They made this costly attack on the 4th of October, 1st of all the British did, and it made the New Zealand troops keenly aware of the strong resistance that they could expect from a determined enemy, and it was well entrenched on higher ground. Now, you're talking about behind concrete and sandbags, pretty hard to penetrate that sort of thing, and there's a senior officer's diary, actually, for the 11th of October, that's the day before the battle. He indicates the concern that was generally felt. He said... We all hope for the best tomorrow, but I do not feel as confident as usual. Things are being rushed too much. The weather is rotten, the roads very bad, and the objectives have not been properly bombarded. However, we will just hope for the best. Bellevue Spur was a V-shaped hill rising about 200 feet above a flooded creek and at this time of year all the creeks were flooded. Its sides extended about a thousand yards back into Passchendaele Village and Passchendaele was sort of like in the toe of this hill but at the point of the V which was about 200 yards wide there was a deep concrete structure with narrow slits and of course it was manned by German machine gun crews and they overlooked the New Zealand lines directly. Not only that, but they had snipers covering every approach and there were two irregular lines of wire, each 10 feet deep, and it extended across the front of the German redoubt and down the hill to the valley where another stronghold barred the flank as well. I mean, it was just an impossible objective. But zero hour for the attack was exactly 5.25am, just before dawn. The supporting barrage opened up from the English, but, you know, it was hardly recognisable to the New Zealand troops. They'd been hoping for this really heavy barrage, but it seemed so weak and patchy, and some of the shells were actually falling short about where they were going. But the artillery had quite a lot against them. They had difficulties in getting the guns up to the forward positions because the mud was so bad now, even behind the New Zealanders, that the British couldn't get up their guns and and they were shifted into this oozy morass and it affected their accuracy. And even when their shells did land near the enemy positions or even on them, many of them just fell deep into the mud and just 
failed to explode. There wasn't enough hard ground for the shells to land on. Oh. Just like if you fire a shell into water, you know, or very oozy mud, it's never going to detonate. But despite the conditions, four New Zealand battalions, they started out eagerly from their line of shell holes along the front and they advanced steadily as a supporting barrage plunged ahead. Now, the men were up to their waists in mud. They were trying to avoid this as well in the semi-darkness and the barrage went faster than the advance was possible and they took enemy machine gun fire and a lot of the men just fell as they were just advancing and others pressed on in the face of this deadly enemy fire. You know, and we get this from the Anzac exhibition too. The bullets were falling like heavy rain on a pond all around them. You know, that's what it's equated to. There was barely no way you could not get hit. And you can't move. No. When they finally did get near to the wire entanglements, which was supposed to be blown away by the artillery, they found all the wire intact. Same story again, the Somme. It is. Some tried to pierce it, but in doing so, they were just riddled with bullets and others dropped to the ground and they began crawling underneath the wire in the mud, virtually under the surface of the mud, but they were shot at too as they were doing it. And and, uh, some reached the other side and they charged forward and, of course, they were all mowing down. And officers and men of the second wave battalions, they pushed through the wide gaps. They tried to crawl under the wire too and some got through the first band of entanglements and a, a few through the second and then they were up against the enemy pillboxes in full view. I mean... Graham, this is pretty serious. We'll take another break and return with this battle of Bellevue Spur, a horror day for New Zealand. And this is at the Battle of Passchendaele, 100 years ago, if you're listening, in 2017. Ah, Weekend Variety Wireless. After Gallipoli, many New Zealand troops, oh, after that horror, uh, were to find themselves on the Western Front. Have a nice day. Oh, boy. And the Battle of Passchendaele in 1917, New Zealanders took a major part in that. And in one particular offensive, the battle for Bellevue Spur, I think, remains about our worst day in military history, and maybe any. I'd say that'd probably be true, wouldn't it, Jared? Yeah, far, far exceeds Gallipoli. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. All right. Well, this Battle of the Bellevue Spur, we're talking that thick mud. Passchendaele is famous for it. They're just trying to take these German pillboxes, the machine gun fires, just mowing them down, and they're finding it really hard to get anywhere through the wire that wasn't cut. And now the few that remain are face-to-face with these German positions. Yeah, and impossible conditions even getting there. The two officers did make it through to the pillboxes. They were uh, from the 1st Otago Battalion. They were 2nd Lieutenants JJ Bishop and NF Watson. Now, they reached the aperture of one of the pillboxes and were actually managed to throw a Mills bomb inside when they were both killed. Now, only where a road ran up the hill was there a lane, and apart from that, everything was bombed. But every inch of this access was 
was was under enemy fire. Now, those troops who, who tried to use the road when they saw their comrades caught up in the wire entanglements, they were mowed down by machine gun fire. And in the marshes on the right company front, where the New Zealand lines had joined that of the Australians, two enemy pillboxes were just as active as those on the hill, and they were just mowing down troops left, right and centre. Now, the enemy fire and the mud and the wire just made them almost impossible to take. The 8th Company, that had lost two platoon commanders on assembling the night before, but just as the company was about to advance, the, the new company commander was killed and a second lieutenant, A.R. Cockerell, he took over command. He was absolutely undaunted in the face of these great odds. You sometimes wonder, don't you, these men, they just find inside themselves such bravery at times like this. He led his platoon from crater to crater against the pillboxes and the trench connecting them and they'd gone only a short distance when they encountered this terrible machine gun fire and incurred the heaviest casualties. Now, 2nd Lieutenant Cockerell, he immediately realised the desperate situation and uh, he was totally prepared to give his own life and uh, in inflicting as much damage as possible on the enemy. Basically, these guys could turn into, like, suicide bombers. Mm. Interestingly, he always went into action dressed as a private, armed with a rifle and bayonet, so he couldn't be identified too easily because the Germans definitely looked for officers to shoot. Oh, that seems like an unusual thing. You th- think the rules in in the army would very, very, very much frown upon that? Yeah, you'd think so, but no, he thought it was quite okay, and I think he acted quite alone, and he always apparently had a number of Mills bombs, these uh, early hand grenades in his pockets, and while their sort of Lewis gun fire held the garrison in front, the young Otago officer and a few men, they worked around the rear, and they commanded the exits from the pillboxes, and second lieutenant Cockerell. He killed several Germans with his bayonet and then he forced the surrender of the entire garrison, taking 80 prisoners. It was quite quite an astounding feat. And the only member of his company who eventually reached him at the second pillbox was a private George Hampton. Now, Cockerell sent Private Hampton off to the battalion headquarters to get urgent reinforcements, but he got killed on the way. Oh, so there's your help. He's the only one who's made it. You've taken this pillbox with all these people, and he goes back to get reinforcements, and bang, and he's dead on the ground. Exactly. Yeah, there's, you know, what hope have you got? But a section of the Australians, they crossed the, the creek, and they went to 2nd Lieutenant Cockerell's aid. Now, he felt back under the cover of darkness actually it was the end of the day they'd been fighting all day absolutely whacked these troops hadn't eaten since the very earliest light they'd been fighting flat out and losing most of their comrades and they reorganized what they could the sort of remnants of the battalion but it was certainly a gloomy picture second lieutenant cockle he was actually recommended by his unit for the immediate award of of the VC. Of course, there's always military authorities at higher levels. They only awarded him a DSO, and they said that this was a very rare award for so junior an officer too, actually. But the corps commander didn't agree that an officer should be awarded a VC as he considered it the officer's duty to set an example to his men. Right. Uh. This is what you're 
supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. This was British formalities in, in practice. The British had sort of taken it for granted that the New Zealand battalions had actually made a successful advance because some of them had actually made it to the pillboxes. And their supporting machine gun units and a signal party, they continued to push on up the slopes before they sort of realised that the infantry's objectives had not actually been gained and they were actually all in great danger. They hastily reorganised and slightly retreated just in time. Right, so those few that did get there and inflict some damage gave the impression that uh, mission accomplished, but it just wasn't enough to hold anything. No, and the casualties were very high amongst the New Zealand officers, and one reason for this, they reckon, was that after the men had fought almost to a standstill, the officers are sort of leaving what shelter they had in shell holes. They went forward to reconnoitre the position and were shot at by snipers and machine gunners from the higher ground. They were pinned down by fire and the troops had to immediately dig in where they were and this was really close up to the enemy's wire. And these German snipers were terribly accurate. They were shooting anyone who showed themselves immediately. This, I think, is just a perfect example of how and why the Western Front became so entrenched. It is just too costly to attack. Exactly. Everything is in the favour of the defenders. Yeah. A noted British war correspondent, Philip Gibbs, he was knighted, actually, Sir Philip Gibbs, he wrote this later, actually, after. He said, the enemy has never massed so many machine guns to his front. Many were posted in trees. There were never so many riflemen scattered amongst shell craters. Machine gun fire and rifle fire never ceased for an instant during the attack. Our men floundered in bogs were unable to keep up with the barrage and German snipers and gunners shot with cool aim while our men struggled forward. Yeah. Just picked off. Now, while the New Zealanders were held up just below Bellevue Spur on the central sector of the front, the Australians on the right had actually taken their first objective. They were also with heavy casualties, and they were moving towards their second. And the units of the 9th Division on the other flank had actually reached their final position already. So the Australians, sort of nearing Passchendaele Village, they were coming under heavy fire from... Bellevue Spur, and if the spur was not taken, they knew that they'd have to withdraw. So it's got to be taken, otherwise that attack is going to fail as well. Uh, to retreat now would be suicide as well. Mm. So uh, between a rock and a hard place, that's putting it fairly moderately. Right, from this hill. They not only had their eyes on the New Zealanders, but the Australians as well. Mm. Now, the officers, they were all pinned down just below Bellevue Spur, and they knew uh, how hopeless and costly this was going to be and to resume the attack, and they began to talk amongst themselves, and they they urged each other that it just had to be abandoned, this whole crazy thing. They had to retreat, and casualties in the New Zealand ranks had really been heavy, and the men were 
utterly exhausted. They just had no more energy to fight. But, you know, they were up for it if they had to. But the wire hadn't even been broken through. It hadn't even been cut. There were hardly any ways through it. And the most forward troops were too close to the wire now for any more artillery barrage to be brought down on it. Because it would kill our own troops. Yeah, and it was not possible to reorganise in the daylight, of course, in the full view of enemy snipers and machine gunners. So the New Zealand battalion commanders, they were all against attacking that day, but they were ready to share with the men what looked like what was called here in uh, one of the accounts certain extinction. They knew they were all going to die. Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh, the horrors of Passchendaele, the mud and the carnage, and I think New Zealand's worst day. During the Battle of Passchendaele, 1917, the mud and the blood and the war and the horrors, uh, New Zealanders were involved in the attack on Bellevue Spur. It's so hard to move, so hard to attack with the mud and the conditions and the constant gunfire uh, that they're experiencing from the higher position of this Bellevue Spur. The casualties uh, have been horrific. Having gotten so far forward, now they find themselves pretty much stuck, not able to go forward or retreat. And they're pretty much looking at each other and saying, OK, Jack, that's us. Is that the situation? Exactly. There wasn't much hope now. And the Australians had been forced to withdraw too from their approaches to Passchendaele. And, and the corps commander, at the end of the day, he decided to cancel a further attack by the New Zealand brigades. For the day had just been disastrous for them. And, and it was teeming with rain now as well. I mean, teeming with rain. And it just brought down misery on everyone and everything. Out in the middle of it, the mud was getting worse and they were just pegged down. Now, even though this was the first time the New Zealand troops had really in this entire campaign had not gained their major objective, they'd actually failed, but the battle was marked by many heroic incidents, there's no doubt about it, and one such was the action of an orderly room sergeant who, after the death of the colonel, uh, of his colonel and the wounding of one of his comrades, he went through a hail of bullets to the senior captain who had been shot, he found him badly wounded and he went on to other senior officers who he all found disabled as well and then he he crawled on to a lieutenant and he informed him that he was now in command of the battalion. Right, found that all the people that he could find that were senior to him all dead. Oh, God, it's me. Yeah, of course, to take over command quite something, isn't it? Anyway, uh, now you recall that dismal diary entry of the day before that I read out. This is what he wrote on the uh, ill-fated 12th of October, the day after. He said, Today has been a very bad day for us. My opinion is that the senior generals who direct these operations are not conversant with the conditions. Mud, cold, rain and no shelter for the men. Finally, the Germans are not so played out as they make out. All our attacks recently lack preparation and the whole history of the war is that when thorough preparation is not made, we fail. You cannot afford to take liberties with the Germans. Exhausted men struggling through mud cannot compete against dry men with machine guns. In Pharaoh 
were concrete boxes waiting for them. Yeah. It was just that reality. Far more informed than Haig was. Oh. I'm talking General Haig. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That diary, that, that's pretty simple information, isn't it? Yeah. That was not known by the generals behind the lines. No, it wasn't. And always things are played up a bit, aren't they? Up the yeah. line as well. You know, we're doing okay. It's worth uh, keep pushing ahead. In fact, it wasn't at all. Uh, and in the sea of mud, you know, that was this battlefield, the, the task of actually carrying out the wounded was just so extremely difficult. It required a huge organisation and the conditions were such that six men were needed to handle a stretcher in that sort of terrain and it took them as long as six hours to bring one wounded man in and the bearers worked throughout the following night and all through in the darkness and their courage and in Endurance. It saved many lives. And imagine being wounded in that mud, actually being alive, I don't know, kneecap gone or something. Jeez. Yeah. yeah, and at daylight the next morning, every available man from the supporting units were employed stretcher-bearing. You know, they, they stopped fighting and just had to carry out wounded. 1,200 men from the 4th Brigade, they were brought up for the purpose, as well as the artillery men and various other units. But even then, a request for help from a reserve battalion, another one, the 49th Division, had to be made just to bring the wounded people out. Now, when the Germans found that their Red Cross was respected, they gave the New Zealand bearers safe passage and not a single shot was fired at the 100 or maybe up to 300 stretcher cases lying outside the New Zealand aid post. That was in full view of the enemy. But when a, a man on either side who was not carrying a stretcher or tending the wounded became exposed, he was immediately shot. So, you know, fired upon and shot. And at other points in the Anzac line, the, the Germans shot down stretcher parties and this brought immediate retaliation. Good heavens, shooting at a stretcher party. I don't mind using the language. That would piss you off. Oh, it would. And our official New Zealand war correspondent, Captain Malcolm Ross, he wrote, The battlefield is such a sea and mud and waterlogged shell holes that the continued success of our last attack was utter impossibility. The division mourns the loss of several brave officers and men. Many deeds of great heroism were performed in this fight, especially in connection with the rescue of the wounded. Now, this action at Bellevue Spur, it was the New Zealand Division's first real major failure during the war. And uh, it achieved absolutely nothing. And the objectives didn't even prove strategic at all in the end. They were just, like, walked away from. Uh, you know, no objectives had been achieved and the cost had been just so heavy. And the main reasons for the failure, you know, looking back, were the, were the weaknesses of the support barrage that was supposed to cover them and the incredibly muddy ground and the heavy German machine gun fire from pillboxes and just the unbroken wire entanglements. Now, I think there were 40 officers and 600 men were killed by the wire or along the Gravenstaffel Road and altogether the 2nd Brigade suffered 1,500 casualties. The 3rd Brigade suffered about 1,200, and it made it New Zealand's most costly 
battle. And there were 100 Germans captured, including a battalion commander, but not a really great gain. And the failure to take Bellevue Spur, it left practically no hope of capturing the remainder of the ridge before winter. So in another attack on the Spur, it was made by Canadian troops on the 26th of October, and this was totally unsuccessful as well. And the Canadian government was very critical, actually, of what it considered the useless sacrifice of lives, particularly following the known New Zealand failure. And of course, we have our Anzac Day we commemorate, but Canada has its Passchendaele. That is a big event in the year, and because of this... Boy, did they sacrifice some blood in that in that. Yeah. The second attempt, the Canadians did actually carry the spur in the ruins and pillboxes at Passchendaele and the greater part of Gilbert's spur to the north that fell on the 6th of November. And it really ended what's referred to in New Zealand account of the war as the greatest and bloodiest battle in history. And, you know, in the years following, you know, New Zealand is, remembers the sacrifice of Passchendaele, I suppose, and other battles in a variety of ways. But many returned servicemen, we have to say this, they suffered in silence. They were racked by nightmares and lingering wounds and families mourned their lost loved ones in private and little public rituals. But how we coped as a nation, I mean, we're still looking at that, aren't we? How we actually coped of losing so many men. Yeah, and those that returned, very few were the same. Oh, exactly. And I was just up in Wellington. I was uh, there and I I, uh, met one of my cousins, actually, and I said, do you remember a little statue I used to play with when I was a kid in my Uncle Frank's house? Now, I always knew Uncle Frank was a Gallipoli veteran. He came back with a big bit of shrapnel on his neck, which he carried for the rest of his life from a Mills bomb. But I used to love this statue of a camel. And and apparently he bought it when he was recovering. He went to Passchendaele. He was sent to Passchendaele afterwards as well. Oh, my God. And he bought this when he was recovering in Paris, actually, and I've just tracked down the sculptor of it. It means a lot to me to have this little statue, and I thought it was about a metre and a half high when I was a kid. It seemed like a life-size replica of a camel and a Bedouin, but actually it's only about 36 centimetres high. I must have been quite small, but I can't believe I've got this replica now of this small bronze statue that my only uncle, really, who I knew to be in Gallipoli and Passchendaele, bought it back as his lone souvenir mm. sitting on my table now it means a lot to me yeah yeah but you know we should all remember the battle of passchendaele it's such a huge tragedy and and in particular all the futility and the cost of war and yips the city it's now called a city of peace or remembrance through as a sort of attempt to never forget that tremendous human cost you know i think 800,000 soldiers, whether and civilians, altogether died at Passchendaele. That was with the Germans as well, and all the civilians who died. And every night in um, Europe's at 8pm, they stop the traffic passing through the Menin Gate, and they play the last post in memories of those who all lost their lives there. Most of the New Zealand soldiers are buried at Tynecott Military Cemetery at Passchendaele. That's the largest of the Commonwealth war graves 
where nearly 12,000 Allied soldiers are buried. And not all the New Zealand victims of Passchendaele are buried there, though. Um, many were carried back in field ambulances. They succumbed to their wounds later, and they lie in little cemeteries established near those medical facilities. And uh, I think there are 291 New Zealanders buried at Lesionhock Military Cemetery near um, Papering, and another 118 nearby at Nine Elms British Cemetery and that included also the 1905 all-black captain who was Dave Gallagher. He died at Passchendaele. Very well documented now, our troops. You can look them up online and everything, all the casualties, but they hold such great information, name, date of birth, rank and previous occupation as a, of a soldier and transfers and movements and, and the date and circumstances of the death it recorded uh, as well as they can, of course, with the cemetery and plot numbers. So we do have some documentation now, which was great, instead of just this lost soldier, you know, this forgotten soldier. We're now pinning it all down a bit more, and I hope it really does make us reflect on the futility of fighting other people's wars. Now, I must admit, when John Key got up and said he was sending troops to Iraq, show some guts, oh, I felt sick to my stomach, Graham. I just reminded me again of Anzac and Passchendaele, I have to say. However, we felt very close to the empire, didn't we? We were part of it. And we followed. Oh, I just want to give you a horrific, a truly horrific, mundane agricultural fact. The fields in Flanders around Passchendaele and right the way down to Verdun are unusually fertile to this day. Oh, my goodness. It just got four years of blood and bone. Oh, God. Crops grow extra well. Uh So many people got vaporised and chopped up. Isn't that horrific? Oh, it's it's a horrific fact, Graham, to know that. The Battle of Passchendaele and in particular, the Battle of Bellevue Spur, New Zealand's worst day. Jared Hindmarsh, thank you very much. Cheers, Graham. I think I'll leave the rest to famous war poet Siegfried Sassoon, who knew a thing or two about this sort of stuff. And you're a simple soldier boy who grinned at life in empty joy, slept soundly through the lonesome dark and whistled with the early lark. In winter trenches, cowed and glum, with crumbs and lice and lack of room, he put a bullet through his brain. No one spoke of him again. You smug-faced crowds with kindling eye, who cheer when soldier lads mark by, sneak home and pray you'll never know the hell where youth and laughter go. At dawn, the ridge emerges, massed and done, in the wild purple of the glowering sun, smouldering through spouts of drifting smoke that shroud the menacing scarred slope. And one by one, tanks creep and topple forward to the wire. The barrage roars and lifts, then clumsily bowed with bombs and guns and shovels and battle gear, men jostle and climb to meet the bristling fire. Lines of grey, muttering faces, masked with fear, they leave their trenches, going over the top, while time ticks blank and busy on their wrists, and hope, with furtive eyes and grappling fists, flounders in the mud. Oh, Jesus, make it stop. (laughs) 
if you didn't know already. Of course, there is the archive of The Outsider's Tales and don't forget the Shipwreck Tale archive as well. Nice to speak with John McChrystal uh, this week about the mystery of the endeavour. They found it. Uh, and now there's a bit of an arm wrestle about who gets to keep it. Uh, it's off Rhode Island. You can see that and plenty more. You can listen to that and see stuff, of course, on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. Go there at once. Stick it in your favourites or whatever you like. Uh, and the Facebook page is the best place to get in touch, to ask Max, cry a question, ask me anything, or just have your say about the show. There's... Um, Great little conversations going on there. Good heavens, I said conversations again. All right, uh, have a lovely week, everybody. I'll post when I know stuff, uh, enough of a bag full of stuff uh, about what's going to be on the show. I'll do that during the week. You'll get an early heads up on the Facebook page uh, around about the Friday, Friday afternoon, and a full rundown of what's happening next weekend. <laughs>